the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life or in this world, this crazy world. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, just a couple of scheduling notes real quick. This is my last show for a couple of weeks. So we'd appreciate your phone calls and questions, um, but we are going on vacation on Monday, and Pastor Ken uh, will be taking over the show for the next two weeks. May will be with him on the date day edition of the program, so uh, you can still tune in, and you'll be listening to somebody who's a whole lot smarter than I am. So um, we will be gone but the show will go on. Tonight here at our church, we're not going to have a normal Bible study. Um, we are having a pastor from Mongolia that our church has been connected with for a lot of years now. Uh, and I just found out he was in town a couple of weeks, or going to be in town a couple of weeks ago, and uh, asked him, well, why don't you come in and speak to our church on Friday night? So Pastor Augie from Mongolia will be uh, sharing his heart tonight and uh, what a blessing he's been to us. Uh, And then, of course, on Sunday, I'm going to be teaching uh, in the book of Acts, um, Paul's first message in the first mission, missionary journey he and Barnabas took. So those are things going on here. I'll be listening to the program uh, most of the time while we're gone. So um, enjoy Pastor Ken. Well, let's get to some questions while we are Uh, waiting for any phone calls. Our first one is from John B. from our mobile app. Very simple. Why can't a woman lead a church? There are many churches that have female leaders. Um, John B., you're right. There are churches that have female leaders, but they're in violation of the Bible. See, that's the thing that we've got to understand. Um, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 It's as clear as it can be in the right context, orderly worship. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, period. No extenuating circumstances. There's no loopholes in that. And the reason women are leading churches is because they are out of order. They are being disobedient. Now, I'm not suggesting they're not saved. I'm not even suggesting that God isn't using them. God loves the people they're ministering to. But here's what I know for sure, John. I know that those churches and those people are settling for less than the fullness of God's best. 
It's that straightforward. So why can't a woman lead a church? I guess the answer to that question depends, John, on whether or not you think the church belongs to God or do you think it belongs to the churches, the, the, the culture that we live in. We know that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the one who makes the rules. And Jesus is the one who told us how we are to run his church. And since we are his servants, he doesn't need our opinion. He doesn't need our improvising. So why can't a woman lead a church? Because the Bible says so. And John, anytime you're in a church where there is a woman who's leading it, they are taking that part of the Bible out. They're just tearing that out of the book. And they're saying, no, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean what it says. Well, we live in a sophisticated world, or there's no difference, male or female. And by the way, that's true, but it's in a completely different context. The roles are important, and they matter. One last thought on this, John. If you disagree, then you're out of agreement with the Lord. Jesus owns the church. It was bought with his blood, and we're obligated to do things his way. And when we decide we have a better way, then we're really taking the place of God. So you decide. You're going to go to a church uh, that is out of order, uh, or you're going to go to a church that actually believes and functions and operates in uh, consistency with the Word of God. It's really that straightforward, John. And the fact that you see women leading church shouldn't change our mind because those of us who are Christians, well, we're supposed to agree with our Christ. Good question. Here's a question from Bridge. I started to read this yesterday and I didn't have enough time at the end of the program. Pastor Ron, do you think we are currently experiencing God sending a delusion or a lying spirit in the world? Bridge, this is the first time that you've, you've uh, sent a question in to us. Uh, I've been saying this now for quite some time. Uh, I believe that not only is God allowing a lying spirit to go out, you know, before Jesus comes for his church, there's going to be a great falling away, an apostasy. And that apostasy is going to be accompanied by this lying spirit. And the, the, the practical outworking of this lying spirit is that people are going to believe things that are impossible to believe. I mean, think about it. A boy can be a man and a man can be a girl. I'm sorry, a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a man. Um, um, it wasn't just a couple of years ago. Nobody would believe that. And now people really believe it. You can give them all of the evidence, the biological evidence. It's interesting, you know, when we were talking about COVID, well, we believe in science and the science says, well, science, biology is a science and it's really, really clear. And yet multitudes of people and those multitudes are growing rapidly. Refuse to listen to science when it comes to our biology. And we see things and, and watch things happening so quickly. And we shake our heads and wonder, how could anybody believe that? And yet, when you're talking to the people that do believe it, they are 100% convinced. They're not being insincere. Uh, they're being fools, but they're not being insincere. They truly believe it. When you say there's two genders, male and female, they say, no, no, no. There's, there's many, many different ones. I think the latest count is somewhere around 100 different genders. That is silliness. And yet, we believe it. Bridge, we believe it to the point now we're allowing children to make these decisions and having their bodies altered chemically or surgically before they're old enough to make a decision. So what are we going to do? How do we understand that that people really believe the unbelievable? Uh, I do believe, Bridge, as you seem to, that uh, God has sent this lying spirit. Uh, it's part of the last day's judgment, and it's already begun. And I believe that the world is now being set up for the rapture of the church and then being plunged into the Great Tribulation. How much longer, O oh Lord, how much longer can you stay in heaven with all of this going on and innocence being hurt? So, Bridge, I believe it with all of my heart. There is no other explanation for it. Uh, and yet, this is the world that we are plunged into right now. Thank you for the question, Bridge. 
Here's a question from Martin. He says, I ran into a Christian who believes that the King James Version is the only real Bible. Is that true? Uh, Martin, it's true that there are people that believe that. They're, they're called actually called King James only uh, Christians. And they do believe that the King James is the only reliable, authoritative word of God. Now, the people that believe that have no understanding at all about how our Bibles are put together. Um, they, they don't understand uh, the canon of Scripture. Um, if the King James Version is the only Bible, well, then before 1611, there was no Bible in the world. Uh, it also means, Martin, that that uh, the Bibles in uh, other countries, uh, in foreign languages, that they're not authoritative, they're not the Word of God. And so uh, I think illogically, it's easy to see how illogical that is. It's just that these guys, and often they're in fundamentalist Baptist churches, uh, it's just, nope, King James only, uh, and they just have no understanding at all about how our Bibles were put together. So Martin, the best translation of the Bible is the one you'll read. Now, I want a real translation, not a paraphrase, um, but a real translation. And the one that you will read is the best one for you. So I prefer the 1984 version of the NIV. Uh, The New King James is a great Bible. Uh, I was actually raised on a King James Bible. I love it, and and I love the memorability of it. Um, But it's certainly not the only authorized Word of God. So um, that ought to be clear. It's it's illogical to believe otherwise, but you got people. They, this this Bible has become sort of an idol to the Martin, and the reality is that um, they simply uh, don't think beyond. Nope, it's my Bible. It's the only way, and it's a bad thing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's a question from Cassie. Why doesn't God allow new books into the canon of Scripture so it can change at the same rate the world changes? Cassie, that's really a good question. Um, the canon is closed. The, the Bible describes uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, the canon of Scripture is closed. Now, God doesn't allow new books, uh, frankly, because he doesn't need them. Uh, new books would not be inspired by God. They would not be written by God. And God has no interest, Cassie, in changing at the same rate the world changes. In fact, one of the facts of, about God that I appreciate the most is that he's a not changing God. He's immutable. His character stays the same. His word is perfect, so there's no need for it to change or adapt. And, uh, you know, the people say, well, we need new books in the Bible or the, the Bible that we have is antiquated. Once again, I want to say they don't really understand the Bible nor the value of it. It's God's word. It began perfect. It will end perfect. And we don't need anything else other than the Bible, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So nothing new in the scriptures, but the key is it doesn't need to be new because it was perfect, Cassie, to begin with. And it gives us some stability. You know, the the fact that we um, don't have to worry about what God's going to want tomorrow. I mean, we know he's an ever-changing God, so he wants the same thing for us each and every day. And we don't have to guess. That's very comforting to me, and it ought to be comforting to all of us. Tim says, in your message yesterday, now obviously I got this question some time ago, in your message yesterday, you mentioned the Holy Spirit was hinting about John Mark's future role. What did you mean by that? Um, Tim, John Mark is is a mysterious character. Now we know he is the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Um, he was Peter's... Um, sort of sidekick, and and the gospel as presented by Mark is Peter's um, memory of Jesus and his ministry. It gives us a little bit about Peter's um, personality. He he was short and direct and to the point. Uh, he, he That's why Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. Um, but, but when I said the Holy Spirit, we're in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit just points John out, I think three separate times, uh, at the beginning of his uh, involvement with with the Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas. He was actually a relative of Barnabas. 
Um, and he, they just mention, and I think what the Holy Spirit is doing there is trying to draw our attention. Now, here's what's going to happen. Um, soon, uh, John Mark is going to go out on Paul's first missionary journey. And for one reason or another, Tim, he's going to fail. For one reason or another. We don't know what it is. Probably he encountered opposition, uh, Bar-Jesus or Elemis, he's called. Um, it was a scary situation, and maybe he got scared and he just went home. Um, but God is going to restore him. And I think what God wants us to, to be looking for in these little hints about John Mark is that people who have messed up, and most of us have, uh, God's not done with us. Uh, he's equipping us to understand that if we get right back in God's will, God's plan for us never changes. He is faithful even when we are faithless. So, Tim, I think the Holy Spirit sort of drops little messages uh, to us uh, through the Word and and all the while preparing us uh, for that one major lesson or that one major message that he wants to communicate uh, to us uh, in that character. And I think John Mark is one of those people. Thank you, Tim, for the question. By the way, I'm going to do that message tomorrow. Um, I'm not going to get to to uh, John Mark leaving Sunday. at that point. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Sunday. I keep saying tomorrow. I got vacation brain, so forgive me. But they're going to uh, um, that, that story with John Mark is going to be. That'll be one when I come back from vacation. Uh, it's an important one. You know, too often we mess up and we think God is done with us. Uh, he could never trust me again. Uh, John Mark was restored and used wonderfully by the Lord. Here's a question from Patrick. Since the three triune members of the Trinity, that's redundant, have different personalities, is there any chance they would ever contradict one another? Patrick, they do have different personalities and different ministries, uh, but they can never contradict one another. Jesus said, I pray that they, speaking of the church, will be one as you and I, Father, are one. Uh, Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And God is is consistent. God is without flaw. So they could never contradict one another. Uh, that would be absolute chaos. And actually, uh, Patrick, it would demonstrate that they're really not um, God at all. So they're perfect. They're in perfect unity. They have been that way from before there was a beginning. Um, they just came in different ministry forms. Now, the personalities, you're right, are different because they have different roles. The Father sent the Son to reveal the character of the Son. We're told in the New Testament that God the Father lives in unapproachable light. Well, Jesus was sent by God so that we could approach that unapproachable light. He was sent to, in the flesh, demonstrate who God was, the power of God, the holiness of God, the character of God, all of the attributes of God the Father. Since God is a spirit, the Father is a spirit, we can't see him. Jesus actually um, had flesh and blood. Uh, he, he, He made it possible for mankind to relate to God who is invisible and completely holy. So that was Jesus' mission. Now, when Jesus was leaving, when he was ready to go to the cross, he told his disciples, um, don't worry, trust in God, trust also in me. And then he talks about our future in heaven. But he says of the Spirit, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Uh, When I leave, he actually said, it's good for you that I go away. I don't think any of them ever believed that. But here's what he said. He said, when I go, I will send another And this is the literal Greek. I'll send another me to you. I'll look different. I won't be here physically. But I will be in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. And the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus said, is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And of course... Uh, sin, the Holy Spirit's got to convince us that we're sinners. Then he's got to convince us that the only way to righteousness is the way set before us by Jesus Christ. And then the only way um, to avoid judgment is through that very same righteousness. 
So the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus said, he will testify not of himself, but he will testify of me. And that's why the Holy Spirit, Jesus in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says, Christ in us leads us to the person of Jesus Christ. So, for example, Patrick, if you were ever in a meeting and uh, all the attention was going to the Holy Spirit and all, all kinds of crazy things were happening, you know that's not really the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will testify about me. So that's the differences. It's not certainly never difference of opinion, uh, never differences of right and wrong. It's just different personalities, different ministry focus. And um, all of them given at just the right time for all of us. Patrick, thank you for the question. 340-9585, Paul says, I'm a Christian who struggles continually with certain sins. Am I saved for real? Um, Paul, I, I like the way you put that, am I saved for real? It sounds almost like you're you're desperate to find out if you're really saved. Here's the thing you got to understand. Um, why are you struggling with sin? Now, in one regard, struggling with sin is a good thing. It's better than the guy who sins and doesn't struggle with it, just kind of gives in and says, well, what am I supposed to do? But the fact that you're struggling is is just the Spirit of God in you saying, you don't have to give in to this. I mean, we've already been granted victory over those sins. Sin shall no longer have uh, dominion over you in the King James. Sin shall no longer be your master. Paul says. So if that's true, why are we still falling to the same sins? And I'm going to suggest two things, Paul. One is you don't hate your sin enough or you don't understand the power of God. The fact that you're struggling with it, the fact that you write this question in, indicates to me that you're really saved. But you're settling for so much less than God's best. You're settling to live like a spiritual beggar when God has already granted you victory. Let me say this. This is to you, Paul, and other people in the audience as well. You know, we're always going to struggle with our flesh, but that's not an excuse. That is not an excuse to keep on sinning. God wants us to win those struggles. And we shouldn't be struggling with the same sins over and over and over. Once you have victory over that sin, then God expects us to walk in that victory. Now, the enemy's going to push buttons and, and he's going to tempt you to do other things. But the one thing that we need to remember is that we have been delivered from the sin already. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out. So that we can stand in the idea there is in victory in that battle that's struggling against sin. So, Paul, the thing that you've got to do is really wrestle with why you're struggling with certain sins. You just give in to them because you think you have to? Do you really not understand what God has done for you on the cross at Calvary? You don't understand... When Paul said, do not quench the Holy Spirit, that when we give in to sin, we're quenching the Holy Spirit and the work that he wants to do in and through us. And then I think, and this is the hardest one, Paul, we've got to get to the place where we're honest with ourselves. And that's when we get to the, that moment when we say, Jesus, truth is, I don't hate my sin, I love it. I love it. And in fact, I love it more than I love you sometimes. See, if we can get to be that honest, Paul, then the Lord will be able to deal with us. It's when we keep fooling ourselves and we keep pretending it's okay. Yes, I hate my sin. I, if you hated it, you'd stop doing it. If you wanted to be with Jesus, you'd be with Jesus and then you wouldn't sin. So are you really saved? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. It sounds to me like you are. But try to understand what God has already done for you. The victory has been accomplished. All you have to do is let Jesus walk you through 
those struggles. Now, the, the, the struggle, the temptations aren't going to stop. There's an enemy who wants to destroy you, and he's doing his best to make sure that he can accomplish that. But the reality is that if you love Jesus, you'll obey him instead of obeying the lust of your flesh. It really is that simple, and if you're that brutally honest, then God will help you. But we got to be honest and say, Lord, I cry, I feel bad, I feel guilty. But the truth is, I love that sin. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't keep doing it. And then you can ask God for his heart toward your sin. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you, but you've got to be honest. Otherwise, you're going to keep struggling. And it's a victory, as I said, that's already been won. How much time have we got left in this half of the program? Nope, we're inside one minute, so I won't even go to the next question. Quick programming reminder, uh, I'll be gone for the next two weeks on vacation. Love your prayers. Um, Pastor Ken will be here on the program both weeks doing the show live. Um, So enjoy. Hey, 30 minutes left in my week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand In For Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half, the last half of our program. Um, you can tell. I, I apologize in advance. My brain is kind of mushy. I really, really try hard not to go into vacation mode this last week. And I did really good until about Wednesday. And then all I could think about was was um, taking the most beautiful girl in the world to the beach in California. So um, thank you for your patience. Here is a question. This one is from Miggy. Uh, Pastor Ron, do you think the two witnesses of Revelation are alive today? Miggy, no. They're not alive today because we know who they are. Uh, one of them is Elijah, uh, the Tishbite. Um, the other one is Moses. Um, um, they represent the Law and the Prophets. Jesus said the Law and the Prophets testified of him. And um, remember the Jewish context of the of uh, the the uh, the ministry of Elijah and Moses. Uh, they are going to come in the last days when God once again turns his attention to Israel. Uh, and they're going to testify of Jesus. So no, they're not alive today, but clearly they can both come back whenever God sends them to come back, and that's what's going to happen uh, in the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So the rapture of the church is going to happen, Miggy. Uh, we're going to be taken away, and then judgment is going to be poured out on this world. And at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, uh, Elijah and Moses are going to tell the Jewish people all about Jesus, and they're going to be unencumbered for three and a half years. Uh, they're going to try to arrest him. They're going to try to kill him, and fire is going to come from their mouth, uh, and, and they're going to be consumed. The enemies of God are going to be consumed. Um, but um, for the first three and a half years, they're going to give that message um, of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the, the, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And then when that's over at the three and a half years, then they're going to storm Moses and Elijah. They're going to kill him. God is going to allow it. They're going to drag their bodies through the streets of Jerusalem to desecrate them. That's the idea. While the whole world parties for for, uh, three days and on the third day, they're going to rise back to life. And that's going to kind of put a damper on the party that the world's going on. But no, they're not alive today. Um, but they're in heaven awaiting the orders. And Miggy, just, this is just me, but I really do believe that they're coming soon. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Ernest from our mobile app. 
Uh, what was the purpose of Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration? What lesson do we need to apply with this incident? Two different questions, Ernest. The the, the purpose, uh, we're told in the Gospel accounts, and I can't off the top of my head remember which Gospel account it was, but just go to the Transfiguration accounts uh, in the Gospels, and you'll be able to read it. But the, the, the reason they were sent by the Father uh, is to tell Jesus everything that was going to happen to him in that week. Remember, this was just when he was getting ready to go into Jerusalem and begin his Passion Week, the final week, uh, his final week alive on the earth. And um, and and the Moses and Elijah were sent to him uh, to tell him uh, what the agenda was. You know, we go somewhere, we want an itinerary. Well, they brought the itinerary from heaven. And uh, the father was just being merciful to the son. Uh, this is what's going to happen. These are the things you're waiting for. And remember, when Jesus was on this earth, he had no, I mean, he was fully God, but his deity was veiled. So he only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. So that's why he needed these directions. And they were there to give him the directions. Now, with regard to what lesson do we apply with this incident, one of the things that is striking to me, Ernest, is that the, the, the two, we know that, that Peter, James, and John were there. Well, James, we know, was the first of the apostles that were that was martyred for his faith. Peter and John, uh, we have their, their later writings, um, the, the epistles of John and the epistles of Peter. And that Mount of Transfiguration experience had such a profound effect on their lives. They were changed forever as a result of what they saw on what Peter calls that sacred mountain. Think about that for a moment. It changed their lives. I think what we need to take away is that the fact that Jesus Christ was God and he was man ought to change our lives. They saw him in a holiness Mark, I think, describes it, and this is Peter describing, his clothes were, were whiter than any bleach in the world could bleach them. And they saw the deity of God, the fullness of God, shining through the limitations of humanity. And it changed them forever. And that would have been something that, that they, they never would have forgotten about the holiness of God. So, Ernest, I think that's the biggest application. We need to remember that our God is holy. And he condescended to come uh, to die for the sins of mankind. Uh, he, he, he took our place. And the, the response, our response to that ought to be nothing but holiness and, and gratitude that comes out. Um, it's Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. Um, it says, I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they want. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at his hands. That's what they were going to share. But but again, go to the um, accounts of the transfiguration and you'll, you'll see that they were showing him all the things that was going to happen to him in that next week. Here is a question from Sarah. What does it mean that we will give account for every idle word in heaven? Well, Sarah, fortunately, and I'm going to speak for me personally now, Fortunately, a lot of the idle words that I've said, things that have come from these lips, um, I've asked for forgiveness for, and those sins are as far from me as east is from west, buried in the deepest, darkest sea. But what it means is that what we say, how we behave, really matters. And those words that just flow for lips, gossip, accusations, um, um, taking God's name in vain, um, just the lies, um, the hypocrisy. Um, we're going to give account for every idle word in heaven. That's what it means. Uh, the world will do that without remedy because Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only source to cover those sins up. But you and I, Sarah, we have an opportunity as Christians, uh, we have an opportunity to um, say, God, I can't believe I said that. Please forgive me and, Lord, control my mouth. I've shared this on the program before, Sarah, but uh, before I got saved, I had such a foul mouth. I mean, just um, no decency at all. Just my, my mouth, just whatever I wanted to come out came out. 
without regard to who I was around. And um, when I got saved, I knew that had to change. And because it did, I'm not going to have to give account for that. The things that we make up, the stories that we tell, every idle word in heaven, we're, we're going to have to give account for. So that's what it means, just exactly what it says. Um, the best way to deal with that is to uh, ask for forgiveness now and then watch the way you use your mouth. James says the tongue's really hard to control. But but it's impossible to control. And we understand that we're going to explain to God. I just mentioned this in my message on Wednesday night, talking about husbands and wives who argue with one another and say horrible things to each other, things that the children in the house um, um, are, are, are able to hear. And and I said, how how would we ever explain to Jesus why we behave that way? I believe with all of my heart that when we argue, we yell, we curse, we think horrible things about people that we told God that we love, uh, I think there's no explanation that's satisfactory. That's why we need to repent and change. And if we'll do that, then um, we can escape that judgment. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, I'm addicted to pornography and am same-sex attracted. How do I come clean with these things knowing they will disappoint my parents? I know Christianity is true, but I can't seem to stop. Let me say, first of all, knowing Christianity is true is not the same as being a Christian. Uh, If you're a Christian, you want to stop. Um... You know, the the addiction to pornography is not really an addiction. It's just something you really, really want to do. It's sin. And the world sins. And you come to the place where you say, well, I know know Christianity is true, but, but if you really knew that, Anonymous, it would change the decisions that you make. It would change the choices that you make. So this idea, we we really justify all kinds of sin with this word addiction. Um, it's just sin. It's not something we're powerless over. With Christ in his hope of glory, we have already overcome those sins. All we have to do is fight in the power of the Spirit to resist those temptations. I'm thinking that you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ yet. And that's what you need to do. And you need to confess that you're a sinner. Lord, what I'm doing is sin. The fact that I'm attracted to people of the same sex, likely anonymous, that's a function of your pornography. So here's what you do. Jesus, today I choose to serve you. Today I'm going to say no to same-sex attraction. I'm going to say no to pornography. And I think God wishes that you would be just as worried about him as you are about your own parents. And once you give your life to Jesus Christ, then you can talk to your parents and say, look, I was doing all these things and it was sin, so I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. Just knowing Christianity is true isn't the same as accepting the truth of Christianity and changing the way you live, the choices that you make. So you're not addicted. You just like the sin. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jeff. He wants to know, does God love everyone or only those who believe in Jesus? Is his love conditional? Um, His love is not conditional, um, Jeff. It is unconditional. However, In order to enjoy the benefits of his love, you've got to become his. For God so loved the world, the whole world, not just those who are saved. He loved the world. And because he loved the world so much and everybody in it that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. But that's not conditional love. That's just God says, I want to love you, but you won't let me love you the way that I want to. 
Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved, it's written. We know God is love, so he couldn't hate in the way that we think of hate. He couldn't hate Esau. But what he was saying is, look, I want to love Esau just the way I'm loving Jacob, but Esau won't let me. He sold me for a bowl of stew. Well, that's the same thing. God loves everyone, and his love is unconditional. However, his love must be received. And the only way to receive that love is to be a born-again Christian, believing in Jesus Christ. So, Jeff, that's the answer to the question. Here is another question from Moses. Well, I guess we could have just asked Moses about the question about the two witnesses. Just joking. Moses says, have you ever met a born-again Catholic? Yeah, I have, Moses. Um, they're, they're very f- rare. Very, very rare. And the reason they're rare is that uh, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that you have to be born again. They, they believe that, that uh, the born-again experience, the, 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 the original sin issue is dealt with on infant baptism. Now, we know that isn't possible. All you have to do is open a Bible and you know that's not true. Uh, And while I often wonder about Catholics uh, who are real believers, uh, who stay in Catholic churches, um, the honest truth is that um, there are some. God is a remnant everywhere. Uh, Just this week or last week, all the time runs together, um, I met some parents of somebody in our church. And... uh, I asked one of the mothers, first time they were from out of town, and uh, as I met them, introduced myself to him and, and said, um, um, so told me where they're from. Well, where do you go to church? And she said, I go to St. Anthony's. I said, is that Episcopal or Catholic? And she said, oh, Catholic. I've been a Catholic my whole life. And she looked at me and she said, but I'm a Bible-thumping Catholic. I love Jesus more than anything in this world. And, and I said, well, why do you stay in the Catholic Church? And she said, well, I just believe that I have a ministry there. But I had no question talking to her, Moses, or looking at her, no question at all that she was born again. I used to play tournament golf, and uh, I played um, in a senior tournament uh, with a guy uh, who was really well-known around town. Um, and I uh, looked at his golf balls, you know, before you go tee off the official, show each other your golf balls so they can see your markings. And he had his marking with an ichthus, the, the fish symbol on the Bible. And I said, his name was Ray. I said, Ray, you're a, you're a Christian? He said, yes, I am. I can't stop talking about Jesus. I said, well, you know, you can talk about Jesus all you want to me. And I introduced myself, and, and, and we, we hit it off really, really well. Um, but in talking to him, he's a cradle Catholic. And he just felt like that was his calling, to stay there and be a beacon of light and tell the truth. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think God would call anybody to stay in a false teaching entity. But he was convinced, the lady that I met last week was convinced, and uh, who am I to judge another person's servant? But clearly, those were two born-again Catholics who loved Jesus with all of their heart. So I think we have to be careful, Moses, about... um, sweeping with with a, a, a too broad a brush. Um, God has a remnant everywhere that doesn't justify the teachings of the Catholic Church nor staying in the Catholic Church. But believe me, um, those two people were radiating Jesus. And I've met a few others along the lines as well. Again, not many, but a few. 340-9585 or toll free 877 630-KSLR. Jenny says, As a new believer, how do I approach my parents and siblings who smoke pot at every family gathering? I know I can't be there, but they may think that I'm judging them. Jenny, I wouldn't worry about it. I would just tell them directly. Say, I'm a new Christian. I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I can't be around drugs. And so here's what I would ask, because I want to be around you. I love you. You're my family. But when we have family gatherings, can we leave the marijuana outside? Can we just not smoke it here? Uh, if you have kids, Jenny, you don't want your kids around it. If, um, but, but even in your case, just tell them the truth. And if they think you're judging them, don't worry about that. Jesus is proud of you. That's called taking a stand for Jesus and sometimes with family, it is the hardest thing to do it. Ginny, I always think of Jesus when uh, his mother and his brother and his sisters decided that 
he was out of his mind and they were going to go take charge of him. And so they uh, went to where he was speaking and there was this huge crowd of people. And so they were kind of at the back and they sent somebody in. Well, go tell Jesus that his mother and his brother and his sisters are here. And um, so they gave Jesus the message and he looked at the crowd of people. Knowing that his mother and his brother and his sisters were out there, he looked at the crowd of people. He said, who is my family? Those who do the will of my father. And, of course, he stayed right where he was. So Jesus divides families. It's that simple. And uh, all you have to do is say, look, I'm asking you to do this kindness for me because it's the only way that I can hang out with you. We're just not going to, I can't be around um, where marijuana is being smoked. Don't apologize for it. Be direct uh, in love and let your joy be evident as you're talking to them about this. Your witness, believe me, the Holy Spirit will use to try to convince them uh, of their need for Jesus as well. Jenny, good luck. Richard, oh, I'm sorry, this is not Richard, it's Ricardo. He says, I talk, without, I talk with people about Jesus, but don't want to feel like I'm pushing faith on them. Do you have any tips? Um, Ricardo, I wouldn't worry about whether or not you're pushing faith on them. All you're doing is sharing good news, the good news that changed your life. If they don't want to hear, they're grown-ups, they can tell you, look, I don't want to hear about it, and then you can stop talking. But, but you know, they, they have no problem talking about all the sinful things that they do, so you ought to have the same right to share the good things that are happening in your life, and Jesus is responsible for those good things. So don't worry about whether or not you're pushing faith on them. All you're doing is declaring the gospel. We don't have to defend the gospel, Ricardo. We don't have to apologize for it. All we have to do is declare it. And when somebody says, well, why are you talking to me about Jesus? And and your answer can be simple. Look, I can't imagine heaven without you. And I want you to be able to, to know how to get to heaven. And then when they stop listening, you can stop talking. But at least you're sharing the good news with them. And God bless you for for freely talking to people about the Lord. But in all reality, Ricardo... Um, they may accuse you of being pushy. Um, just say, no, I just want you in heaven and leave it at that and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. I think too often we have the tendency to think that, well, I've got to do, um, i got to convince them or no, just just share the good news. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead for the remission of sins. Hope that helps, Ricardo. This might be the last question today. We're inside, I think, four minutes now. This is from Philip. Uh, Do you have any tips for productive, vibrant prayer meetings? Most of the prayer events I go to are pretty boring. Um, You know, I don't think think God is interested in us being excited about prayer. Um, You know, he's not trying to put on a show. But um, I, I just think genuine, sincere prayers coming from from hearts of people that are committed to the Lord, uh, I think those hearts make prayer um, um, interesting. I think uh, when we start getting prayers answered, uh, I think we get more engaged. So I just think that's what we got to do. You know, Philip, we have a a, a Saturday morning prayer meeting um, from 9.30 to 12.30 every Saturday. Um, I'm sorry, 9.30 to 10.30. Paul and I will be here. And um, I think they're very vibrant prayer meetings. Uh, it's not loud and it's not a bunch of shaking and jumping and that kind of stuff, shouting. Um, but 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 it, it's prayers that come from the heart of God and they're being answered. One of the things that I can say about corporate prayer meetings is most of the time people pray too long. Um, Jesus' prayers are short prayers. He gives us a model for prayer. Uh, Paul gives us a model for prayer. None of them are too, are super, super long. Um, and yet when we, we pray, we have a tendency to just go on and on and on and on. And I, I think that turns some people off of prayer meetings. 
Now, having said that, I think the people that are turned off because somebody is praying for too long, I think they need to, to check their hearts. Um, but uh, I just think there there needs to be sort of a a format. People need to know that they can trust the people that they're praying with. Um, there has to be uh, a certain level of privacy in the prayer meetings. Um, people need to be able to be free to to share their heart. But but I think that's. Uh, pretty interesting. I don't think it's boring at all. You know, Philip, of all the ministries that we do, the one I would feel the worst about missing is our prayer meetings on Saturday morning. We've seen prayers be answered and and um, we've seen people's hearts change. Uh, that's really the real value of prayer. And as we've seen their hearts change, we see uh, their lives change and, and you just see what God is doing um, through the prayer of his people. So I don't think at all, Philip, um, that they're boring. Um, but there needs to be format. Let me also say this in, in church prayer meetings, I think that the senior pastor needs to be involved. If he wants people to pray, uh, he needs to be there. Other than that, I think it's just a matter of that. Tonight, Pastor Augie from Mongolia is going to be here. Sunday, I'm going to be teaching in Acts chapter 13. And Pastor Ken will be filling in for the next two weeks while Paula and I are on vacation. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back in two weeks on AM630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.